hello yet again, and welcome back to Nasty Pasty, the show where there are no soggy bottoms and raw pastry, but instead there's devilish delights of horror that probably should have sued the film school for not being deplorable enough to make it onto the DPP's degenerate video nasties lists. So in this episode, we'll find that you should never invite your resident squatter to live with you. Opening up a shop with only one small shelf of pies is very good business sense, and in times of huge mental and physical stress, you should always keep your wig on. It's Andy Roberts here again, still slinking around like a rabid dog harassing a mental patient. I'm still covering the video nasties that never were, with one episode a week covering two films. Any of the legit video nasties being reviewed or analysed can be found on the Video Nasties podcast or The Strange and Deadly Show if you do wish to delve into those films. But let's get into the meaty filling of today's pie, yeah? So this episode of Nasty Pasty, we're covering proto-zombie films, but in the strictest sense, they're not prototype zombie films. But I'll explain myself a little bit better. So before George Romero came onto the scene, zombies in horror films were strictly of a more hammer-horror type of background, mostly based on the real-life practices of voodoo mysticism and Haitian zombifying powder, in which there was a corpse that would be brought back to life under the control of an individual who would force it to do their bidding, usually of a nefarious nature. But there was no flesh-eating autonomy, no undead virus to pass on through bites, and no pus-ridden, saliva-glistened, rotting corpse meat. Then, of course, Night of the Living Dead came along, rewritten the rules, and it changed the landscape forever, so much so that his rules have remained gospel even today. The next instalment, Dawn of the Dead, wouldn't be out until 1978, meaning that there were a couple of zombie films in the interim which had elements of night, but were not quite de facto zombie films in the way that Dawn would eventually popularise. Both Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead, under its Zombies Dawn of the Dead title, were both Section 3 video nasties, meaning that they were liable to be seized from the shops. Night of the Living Dead was one of the oddities in this, as it was the only film that was black and white to be seized in this sort of fashion. The Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue, or Don't Open the Window, was also one of the few zombie films on the DPP's Section 2 nasties list that was released between these Romero films that actually featured the kind of splatter that one would expect from the genre. However, the two films that we're covering today are 1971's Let's Scare Jessica to Death and 1970's I Drink Your Blood. Not the typical titles when you think of zombies, but similar nonetheless. So let's find out how, and start with, yes, it's actually his name, John Hancock's Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Recently released from an institution, Fragile Jessica and her husband Duncan head to their new home in Connecticut with their friend Woody in tow. 
They're surprised when they find a squatter called Emily already living there, but they invite her to stay the night, which pleases Woody, who's attracted to her. After bonding with Emily, Jessica persuades Duncan to ask her to stay indefinitely. All is not quite right, however, as Jessica begins to hear voices, is grabbed and pulled underwater while out swimming, and sees a mysterious girl looking at her from a distance, as well as encountering the locals in the town, who apart from being bandaged, are passive and hostile to both Duncan and Jessica. Jessica does not tell the men of the voices she's hearing, as she's afraid that they'll think she's relapsing. After selling antiques to a local dealer called Sam, he tells them of the legend of Abigail Bishop, who used to live in Jessica's house and drowned in the lake, rumoured to still roam the island as a vampire. Duncan, however, changes the subject to prevent Jessica from being too disturbed. While out headstone rubbing, Jessica spies the mysterious girl once again and comes across Sam's dead body while in pursuit of her. When she brings Duncan back to see it, the body is gone, and the girl is still around, whom Jessica questions aggressively, but the girl does not speak and flees when Emily turns up. An argument ensues between Jessica and Duncan when he suggests returning to her psychiatrist, and Duncan ends up sleeping downstairs, where he is seduced by Emily. The next morning, after noticing the resemblance Emily bears to Abigail, the pair go swimming when Emily vanishes, only to re-emerge donned in a wedding gown. She attempts to bite Jessica, causing her to flee home and barricade herself in the bedroom for hours. Eventually resolving to find her husband, she hitches a ride into town while Woody returns to the house after working in the orchard, and is bitten by Emily. In town, Jessica finds Duncan's car, but the townspeople do not speak to her and appear to have various scars on their bodies. Becoming scared, she then runs into a living Sam, who has a large scar on his face which terrifies her, and she runs back to the house and passes out in the woodland. She is eventually awoken by Duncan and taken home, until she notices a scar on his neck, whereupon Emily appears with all the townspeople and attacks Jessica with a knife. Jessica manages to escape the clutches and escapes from the house, noticing the, the mute girl's corpse on the way out and Woody's body with his throat slashed in the orchard. She attempts to cross the lake on the ferry, but soon sees that the ferryman is also scarred on his face. She jumps into a rowboat and attempts to cross the river herself, when a hand emerges and reaches out for her. She reacts by stabbing the figure with a boat hook, only to notice that it's Duncan. At the shore, Emily and the townspeople stare at her as she questions her own sanity and muses that regardless of how insane recent events seem to be, she has no choice but to believe that they are reality.
Let's Scare Jessica to Death originated from a script entitled It Drinks Hippie Blood, written by Lee Kalchine, which was vastly different in both tone and content to the finished film. In the original tongue-in-cheek screenplay, the plot would follow a small group of hippies who camp near a lake, who are then systematically attacked by a creature that lives in the depths. When first-time director John Hancock signed on to direct... He had the script changed to a much more darkly toned tale, which was relatively easy as the original story was so simple. Producer Charles Moss asked Hancock to retain certain elements of the original script, such as the mute girl and the hippie character in the form of Woody. There is some influence from the 1871 novella titled Carmilla by Irish novelist Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu, which predated Dracula by over 20 years. The novella concerns a young girl named Laura who becomes the target of a vampiric girl called Camilla, and several elements of the book are evident in John Hancock's reworking. Laura herself dreams of her encounter with Carmilla before it happens, and has frequent nightmares of similar ghastly happenings. There's a portrait that's discovered which shows that Camilla is the spitting image of a long-dead countess, and Carmilla is discovered to have performed her vampiric routine with other young women in the town. There's also a scene which Carmilla makes a romantic gesture towards Laura, which is also present in Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Filming began in early fall of 1970 in Old Saybrook in Connecticut. Upon a trip he took with his wife, uh, producer Bill Badalato also suggested that the village of Chester would be a perfect location. So Hancock would utilise the local Chester Hadline ferry that would cross the Connecticut River. The exterior of Jessica's house was filmed at the Bishop House in Old Saybrook, while the interior shots were filmed at the E.E. Dickinson Mansion in Essex, Connecticut. And because of that time of year, the the lake was extremely cold, which made it quite quite difficult for the actors to work with. But there was a plus side to the weather. A thick fog had nestled in around the house on the first night of shooting, so the crew shot footage of it rolling through the grounds as night was settling in, uh, in which they used for the very effective melancholic transition sequences. The hearse driven by Woody in the film was also more than just a macabre image. It was used by the film crew to ship the actors to the various shooting locations. So part of the eerie tone uh, of of the film comes from composer Orville Stoiber, with maddening synthesized tracks, some haunting pianissimo melodies, and occasional heart pounding drums that clash with ethereal whispers. Stoiber also taught Marie-Claire Costello, who played Emily, the song Stay Forever in his apartment during filming, and her performance was so memorable in the film that they actually ditched an initial idea that they had to dub over her with a professional singer. Despite her malevolent character in the film, Costello was very eager to avoid filming the scene where Emily kills Jessica's pet mole, and she actually hid on the set when it was time to shoot the scene. It's fairly apparent, though, to the eagle-eyed viewer that the mole was in fact actually a mouse, and of course no real harm came to it either. Now, Zora Lampert, who played the part of the very disturbed Jessica with a very powerful and memorable performance, would go on to star in a variety of TV shows, but also a role in 1990's The Exorcist 3. Barton Heyman, who played husband Duncan, would later go on to portray Dr. Klein on a thematic note in 1973's The Exorcist as the Doctor who examines Regan and gets a foul-mouthed response in return. Cinematographer Robert Baldwin worked on other memorable horror pictures like uh, James Clickenhouse's The Exterminator and its sequel, uh, also Basket Case 2, and also Frankenhooker. 
Director John Hancock would later go on to direct a few episodes of both Hill Street Blues and The Twilight Zone, as well as some non-horror films like Weeds and uh, Prancer. He was also offered the job of directing Jaws 2, uh, based on the scene in which Jessica's dragged underwater by Emily, though he was later dropped. Let's Scare Jessica to Death was his only horror picture, but the same cannot be said of Irvin Carlton, who did the film's makeup, as he had worked the previous year on none other than I Drink Your Blood, which is the other film this week. Bill Badalato, the producer, also worked on many high-profile films later in his career, uh, such as Top Gun, uh, the Hot Shots films, Broken Arrow, and Alien Resurrection. Predating the subtle melancholy of Nicholas Roig's Don't Look Now... Let's Scare Jessica to Death is intensely psychological in its approach to horror, and in a manner similar to Paul Verhoeven's sci-fi rollercoaster Total Recall, the film is incredibly ambiguous as to the true nature of the events that take place. On one hand, the events can be taken as they are seen, as Emily is clearly suspicious, does in fact seduce Duncan and Woody, and this is seen outside of Jessica's perspective, and the townsmen are incredibly hostile, as seen by Duncan's reaction. On the flip side, Jessica is already known to be previously institutionalised and is seemingly surrounded by deathly images. Her main hobby is gravestone rubbings. She and her friends drive up to the house in a hearse. She displays her impressionable nature by calling out the spirits herself during the seance. And she also takes a baby mole as a pet, an animal well known for inhabiting the ground. There is even symbolism in her visit to the antique dealer Sam, who misidentifies a Millefore-style lamp as a Malifore-style lamp, replacing the usual meaning of a thousand flowers to flowers of evil. While this could be serendipity on part of the writer mishearing the word, it's too coincidental that it fits in with the tone of the film. The fact that the events take a turn for the worst after this visit to Sam is notable as this is when Jessica first hears of the legend of Abigail, after which the voices that she's been hearing in her head begin to take elements of Emily, and in essence Abigail's character. And Jessica also starts to notice the similarity between the two when she looks at the picture. The fact that the film's events could be an intense hallucination on Jessica's part is heavily implied in the ending, After killing Duncan, Jessica muses to herself that she can't believe what has happened, but cannot determine if it is reality or madness, and therefore has to believe that what she has experienced is reality. It's even possible that the events are both happening, and that Emily is actually a projection of Jessica's inner securities and feelings towards the other men. Jessica clearly has low self-esteem and confidence, and remains quiet about her real feelings for fear that Woody and Duncan will disbelieve her. The men in her life clearly make all of the decisions for her, and she displays very little of her own power. Emily begins to empower her in a way, such as providing companionship at first, and then after hearing the legend of Abigail, she becomes threatening to the men in Jessica's life, first by seducing Duncan, and then by killing Woody. Although her actions may seem hostile, when Jessica finally snaps and kills Duncan with the boat hook, it's very notable how Emily simply stands and watches her with the townsmen, Almost as if to say, we've done it. We forced her to take action and remove the restrictive influence in her life. Her husband. Emily can clearly travel in water, so the fact that she stays her hand at this late stage is very interesting and kind of lends credence to the otherwise odd title. Let's scare Jessica to death could literally mean scare her into breaking free of the male influence in her life. It's very fitting, then, that Emily dons a wedding dress and that the legend of Abigail makes it clear that she drowned before her wedding. 
symbolically the day when a, when a woman becomes tethered to a man forever. Regardless of how the film is interpreted, it's a memorable film for the subtle but realistic acting performance from Zora Lampert and the melancholic unease that the film's tone and setting evokes. And in spite of the word vampire being used, there's very little vampirism actually displayed. We don't see Emily drinking any blood, she freely walks around in the daytime, and she's already in Jessica's house before she's invited in if we're going by the traditional rules. While she does attempt to bite on the neck, this is no different really to the water-dwelling zombies in Jean Roland's Zombie Lake, which would come later. The fact that the men in town have various scars on their face or arms clearly show that it's the wounding itself which causes the zombification, if you like, and Emily's control over them. It's almost like a perfect blend of the soon-to-be traditional zombie film, where the disease is passed through injury, and the old idea of Haitian zombieism, where a zombie is a corpse under the control of something else. Night of the Living Dead is also evoked in the final sequence, when the townspeople have gathered around Jessica's bed, finally able to attack her en masse, and the zombie effect of coming back to life after death is is personified in Sam's character, who's clearly a corpse at one point, but fully animated towards the film's climax. It's also notable that Woody is dead from a throat slashing, but is unreanimated, almost as if he hasn't had enough time to come back, and the same, time, uh, the same thing for the mute girl. These elements, which are borrowed from older zombie traditions, as well as bits from Romero's film, make Let's Scare Jessica to Death much more of a zombie film than a vampire flick, and the strong approach to its story, and ambiguity regarding Jessica's plight, makes it all the more endearing as a cult film. Despite its many layers and its rich subtext, the film received fairly average reviews upon its release in 1971, with many criticising the low budget and the lack of oomph considering the vampire theme, with some critics likening it to a lesbian panic melodrama. Recently, however, it has become apparent just how well regarded the film actually is, with a contemporary reappraisal of the film as a beautifully shot, incoherently dreamy chiller. Author Stephen King is said to be a big fan of the film, and the Chicago Films Critics Association actually ranked it number 87 on the scariest movies ever made. Possibly due to the the film's lukewarm reception and its relatively quiet advertising campaign, the film wasn't released on VHS until 1984, and even then it only received a US release. Of course, the Video Recordings Act had just come into effect in Britain, so this film could only really have been seen by ambitious buyers on the black market. It did, however, receive a brief, uncut theatrical release in Britain back in 1971, but the film has not really materialised on DVD or Blu-ray since, and it's only available from other territories at this time. So, that was Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Now, we'll move straight on to our next film, which is I Drink Your Blood. A small group of hippies, led by the manic Horace, perform a satanic ritual involving a chicken in the middle of the woods. 
Sylvia, a girl brought by one of the hippies called Andy, watches from the trees and is eventually seen, dragged out and gang-raped by some of the men. Local baker Mildred and her brother Pete find the injured Sylvia and return her to Dr Banner, her grandfather. The hippies decide to stay in town after their van refuses to start, prompting Dr Banner to confront them about Sylvia when he is quickly beaten and forced to take LSD, causing him to hallucinate badly. Pete swears revenge and steals away with a shotgun, intending to kill them, but instead he encounters a rabid dog, and having shot it, he collects the blood and injects it into the meat pies at the bakery, and subsequently sells them to the hippies when they come in for food. Soon after consuming them, Horace and other other gang member Rolo begin to show signs of rabid infection, and they attack each other and the others in an animalistic rage. Andy, who had not eaten the pies, and Molly, who's infected, run from the house. Molly meets a group of construction workers and proceeds to have sex with them all before the infection takes hold of her, and she bites most of them in a savage frenzy. Some of the ones who escape are killed by Horace upon entering the hippie's house. Andy goes to the Banner household to apologise to Sylvia when Pete comes in and reveals what he's done, causing Andy to explain that he's not infected due to not eating the pies. A pregnant hippie and a mute hippie who'd fled the devastation together take refuge with a kindly woman until the mute girl becomes rabid and kills her, causing the pregnant one to flee herself. Upon discovering what's happening, Dr Banner calls in friend Dr Oakes to explain what the rabies will do, and they soon discover that the construction crew have all become rabid and feral, overrunning the small town. Andy, Sylvia and Pete shake off the infected at a river due to the rabbit being afraid of water and stumble upon Dr Banner dead inside a barn and the pregnant hippie who kills herself upon learning that she has rabies. The trio make it to the bakery when they see Rolo and Horace who become aware of each other and begin fighting amongst themselves allowing the trio to convince Mildred to open up the door for them. Unfortunately, Andy's decapitated by one of the rapidly converging crazies, and the remaining foursome's attempt to escape is quashed when a large number of them flip the group's car. Just as the horde are about to kill the group, reinforcements arrive with Dr Oakes and gun down all the rabid victims, saving the group from certain death. But before that, it's like the devil takes over the body, the mind reduced to the level of an animal, capable of the most savage acts... The colour of red triggers an excitement in the mind, and of course the fear of water and clear liquid produces an almost fanatical craving for raw flesh. What worries me is the fact that this here hippie group is on hard drugs, coupled with a reaction to the rabies virus it's bound to cause unthinkable complications. should be in a hospital in your condition. Oh, I'm okay. Well, we've been walking for miles, it seems, and we ain't had anything to eat, but that's all. Carrie, that ain't nice. Now put it back. Well, she don't know better. She's a mute. (laughs) Well, what am I standing here for? The least I can do is get you two something to eat. Oh, anything. Anything will be fine. I Drink Your Blood 
started life in 1970 when exploitation producer Jerry Gross contacted David Durston to make an extremely graphic horror film with the condition that it excluded any supernatural creatures such as werewolves or vampires. If the film was successful, Gross offered to improve Durston's current contract with the Directors Guild, so Durston readily agreed. Initially struggling for a concept, Durston eventually stumbled across an incident that occurred in Iran, where rabid wolves had attacked a schoolhouse and infected several children and adults with rabies, a disease well known for its devastating effect of driving its victims insane and homicidal. Durston contacted the Iranian doctor who attended the scene and was even shown footage of some of the victims locked in cages and foaming at the mouth, which horrified him. And the trial of Charles Manson was also occurring at the time, and Durston was inspired by the intense coverage to include a hippie cult in the film, which was led by the character of Horace Bones, based on Manson himself. He then wrote a full draft for the film, entitled Phobia, which depicted the outbreak of rabies in a small town that was being harassed by a hippie cult, and it impressed Gross enough for him to greenlight the production. Filming began later that year, uh, with principal photography taking place in Sharon Springs, which was a small village in New York. It was once a tourist spot, but the town was largely empty and sparsely populated at the time, allowing Durston to make full use of the town as his set. Uh, the old hotel that the hippies make their base in was called the Roosevelt, and it was practically torn to bits by the time the crew was finished. Thankfully, the building was planned for demolishing anyway, and Durston just paid $300 for full access to the building. The budget was very low, even for the actors, who had to perform all their own stunts, while all the sp- film's special effects were practical, but as bloody as possible. Not all the effects were so special, however, as the opening scene features a chicken being killed for real by having its throat cut. According to Durston, the chicken was bought from a farm to be cooked, but it was integrated into this opening satanic ritual, of which details were gleaned from a friend of Durston's who used to belong to such a cult. This is the only instance of animal death, however, as the dead rats that were later displayed in the barbecuing scene were purchased from a lab, and actually had to be painted brown to match the live performing rats that were shown earlier. Those live rats in question were actually the same performers that were used in the horror movie Willard, as well as uh, the sequel Ben, which was released the following year. Some of the more intense moments of filming led to Durston having to guide some of the actresses in their more emotional scenes, uh, leading some locals to complain about the way that Durston was handling the production. The actress who played Molly, uh, Rhonda Fultz, she even had a crying fit after working herself so much during the scene where she becomes rabid. And among the chaos on the set, young Riley Mills, who played Pete, twisted his ankle during filming, and the actor playing Dr. Banner, he lost his dentures during the fight scene with Horace. Despite the film being quite simple, several scenes were actually altered or removed later in production. There was supposed to be a scene when Dr. Banner is actually having a hallucinogenic vision after being drugged with LSD of uh, Pete and Sylvia's parents. The ending was also supposed to feature Mildred becoming rabid and attacking her boyfriend in bed, before Pete tries to hand himself to the police for causing the epidemic only to be laughed off. While this ending is restored in certain versions, a remnant of the ending can be found in the theatrical version, as after Pete is shrugged off by the cops, he then runs into a nearby field to play with a gun, which is actually the scene that plays over the closing credits. The film was cast with a multitude of multi-ethnic actors, mostly due to the low budget, really. 
Uh, the ant- main antagonist, Horace Bones, was played by Indian dancer Bhaskar Rao Chowdhury, who had previously appeared in Durston's Blue Sextet. As well as the performing the role with a cheesy enthusiasm, he also contributed his electric knife, which is used in the infamous hand-chopping sequence. After the film was released, Bascar took his current girlfriend to see the film, only for her to vomit halfway through, and she outright refused to watch the remainder of the movie. Bascar would continue to work as a dancer until an accident in 1997, which caused him lifelong paralysis until his death in 2003. Arlene Faber, who played Sylvia, would later go on to star in the critically successful uh, The French Connection, while Lynn Lowry, uh, who played the deaf-mute character, would go on to star in some memorable cult movies herself, such as George Romero's The Crazies, uh, the sexploitation film Score, as well as David Cronenberg's Shivers, along with Barbara Steele. Now, Lynn Lowry's character wasn't actually included in the original script, but Durston was impressed by her so much that he integrated her into the story without any lines. And Durston himself also played Dr. Oakes, after the original original actor stepped down from the production. Once the film was ready to release, uh, the title had been changed to Hydrophobia, due to the symptom of rabid people uh, becoming a plot element in the film's story. However, Jerry Gross uh, changed the film's title to I Drink Your Blood, unbeknownst to Durston, and he also retitled another film he had in his repertoire, uh, the 1964 film Zombies by Del Tenney, and he renamed it to I Eat Your Skin, intending to play the pair in grindhouse uh, drive-ins as a double bill. The film's marketing became reliant on this double-feature tagline, and the artwork for the film as well was used from the 1967 Roddy McDowell film It. Uh, to promote the film. Interestingly, the same artwork would be used on a multitude of other unrelated movies, but most notably the Section 3 video nasty film, uh, Tomb of the Living Dead, which is more commonly known as Mad Doctor of Blood Island. Despite the original intention of playing at the Grindhouse, it reportedly opened uh, on Broadway at the Warner Brothers Theatre. The release was relatively problematic, however, uh, with the MPAA rating the film X, the first instance of its type for the violence aspect alone. In spite of this, the film was released by Gross with a fake R rating, until the MPAA caught him and threatened action if it was not rectified. So instead of doing it himself, Gross allowed each individual theatre to cut the film as they saw fit. This led to the liberal cities and states having the uncut version, while more conservative areas had truncated prints. Durston now surmises that there's probably hundreds of different versions of the film playing at the same time. Nowadays, of course, the original uncut version is released without issue. The film does not necessarily feature zombies, but it does have many of the features that would become part of the zombie film template. Namely, the idea of contagion. The rabies is passed on through bites, and their victims are visibly aggressive, homicidal, and seem to operate a bit with a with a pack mentality. It creates a very Romero-esque uh, horde of infected. This influence from Night of the Living Dead is also evidence in the film's climax, when the survivors barricade themselves inside the bakery, while hordes of the rabid infected attempt to get inside. A poster for Night of the Living Dead is even seen inside the bakery, so it acknowledges the film's influence on this particular scene. The film's plot of hippies going on a zombie-like rampage while not actually being undead is also extremely similar to the 1980 video nasty Forest of Fear, which is known better in the US as Toxic Zombies. 
While the film has an outrageous premise, it's dampened somewhat by the uneven pacing. I often got lulled into thinking that the film was quite restrained due to the large amounts of uneventful dialogue and the wandering around, only to be suddenly surprised by some rather graphic gore scenes, including a sword that goes right through the back, uh, a disembowelment, an electric knife hacking off a hand, an axe decapitation, and a pitchfork through the neck. While it is gory, the film is not especially serious, and the often hysterical performances and kitsch oddities like the style of the dress, uh, insistence of the pregnant hippie keeping her wig on, and that awful one-shelf bakery, it means that the film is cheesily humorous throughout. In that sense, it's a very entertaining film with only a few pacing issues, which is more than enough for me, and I'm sure it's more than enough for a lot of people. The film was absent from UK cinemas. It was likely to have never been submitted due to the content. But it did, however, receive a VHS release from Media Video in the early 1983, a smack dab in the middle of the Video Nasty scare. Although, it was actually a cut version which was missing 5 minutes and 9 seconds of carnage. Media Video had already released the Section 3 Nasty titles, Demented and Home Sweet Home, which were both seized by the police, and it's very likely that I Drink Your Blood was also seized at the same time, mostly due to the fact that footage from the film was included on the videotape that outspoken Conservative Mary Whitehouse was showing to the National National Viewers and Listeners Association and the Conservative Party Conference during her bid to ban the Video Nasties. The VHS was withdrawn in the aftermath of the, v- uh, the Video Recordings Act, and it didn't resurface in Britain for a whopping 33 years, when a Blu-ray and DVD release from 88 films passed finally without cuts in 2017. That was I Drink Your Blood, and it's the end of the Zombie Craze-a-thon for this week, folks. So thanks to all those who've been listening, and if you do have any feedback or comments on the films that we've covered so far, or we will be covering in the future, please do email them in, in either written or audio type, uh, to nastypastypodcast at gmail.com. The theme of next week's episode is Notorious Serial Killer and Deviant Ed Gain. Who'd, pre- who'd infamously inspired many a horror film, most notably Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho and Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre, will be covering a pair of slasher, serial killer-type films that are equally based on the crimes of Ed Gain, and they are 1972's Three on a Meat Hook and 1974's Deranged. Both moody, both dark, quite very low budget, but are they nasty? Well, we'll find out next week, guys, so I'll see you all next time. Toodle-peep!